fellowship this morning. Judges 4, verses 1 through 9, is where I'll be reading. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth, Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I surely will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. This is the word of God. You can be seated. The title of the message this morning, Into the Hand of a Woman, Into the Hand of a Woman, based on what we just read there at the end of verse 9. And before I get into this message, let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. I need your help. I need you to please focus me, focus us on your word. Lord, please push out distractions. I could even feel distractions trying to come into my mind and my heart during the worship time. So, Father, please, I pray, please, give us the ability and the want and the drive to focus on what you're saying to us now in this text. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active among us, speaking to our hearts, moving us to be more like Jesus, moving us to advance his kingdom. And to those of us who don't know you yet, Lord, I pray that he would especially be drawing the hearts of sinners to himself. Open up our eyes and open up our hearts to believe this text this morning and to walk accordingly. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you've never read the book of Judges, and if you've never read, especially here, Judges chapter 4, well, buckle up. It is action-packed, and it has an unexpected ending. As you even heard um, Butch say earlier, he said, I'm interested to see what you're going to do with this and that, because... There's a few things in here that might surprise you if you've not read this before. Well, as you heard when I was reading, uh, we have a handful of characters in this text, in this portion of Scripture. So to help keep everyone in the right category in your mind, I have made this, um, this slide for you, this, this image that I want to put up and show you the characters that we're going to be dealing with in the text today so you can just categorize them rightly. Well, we have Deborah, of course, the judge, and then under her in that picture you see is this gentleman, Barak. He is the leader of the armies of Israel in this narrative, okay? So yeah, 
Deborah the judge, Barak under her as the leaders of the armies. Then we have the bad king, the, the bad guy of our text, which is Jabin. And under him is the leader of his armies, Sisera. We're going to see towards the end of this chapter another character named Jael. She's going to become very important. And then, of course, over and above all this, let's not leave out God. And if you're wondering what that character is, that's the Greek character Theta, which is the first letter in the Greek word for God, which is Theos. Whenever I was in Bible college, I had a professor that if he was just writing notes on the board quickly and he referred to God, he would just put Theta up there. Just the letter theta for God, for the first letter of theos. And we're going to see God is actually very active in this narrative, more active than anyone else. So I hope that helps know kind of where we're going and helps keep the people organized in your mind because they're all important to the narrative here. Well, let's walk through verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, prior to this text, we actually didn't hear about Ehud. The pattern so far has been the people of Israel did evil. God raises up this judge. This is what happens to deliver the people of Israel. And this judge lived this many years, and the people have had peace. Then he died, and then the people sinned. And we go over and over again. Well, now, the last person we spoke about, however, was not Ehud. It was Shamgar. Remember Shamgar? Interestingly enough, though, he gets lumped in with the judges, and he could have been. He doesn't necessarily follow the pattern here for a judge, though. I personally think he may have existed during the time of Ehud, obviously. I'm not sure he was a judge, however. The text never calls him that. And he's not lumped into the pattern of judges and what they're doing. Either way, we get here... The first verse, nothing about Shamgar, but we get something about Ehud. And Ehud led the people uh, into rest for 80 years, we're told, at the very last verse of, uh, that we get about his life. So Moab was subdued that day. This is chapter 3, verse 30. Under his hand in the land had rest for 80 years. So under Ehud, the people of Israel had enjoyed the longest recorded period of rest that we read them experiencing in the entire book of Judges. Nowhere else in the book of Judges do we read the people of Israel experiencing longer time of rest than they did under Ehud. He had removed the idols from among the people of Israel, and he moved the people of Israel toward their God, toward following their God. But no sooner had he died, unfortunately, we, we read in verse 1, that their hearts began looking for satisfaction in other things. They began looking at the nations around them again for fulfillment and satisfaction. Why is that? Well, you see there was a temporary, temporary revival, uh, temporary excitement toward God and the things of God. However, there was no real reform in their hearts. There was a Temporary revival of excitement towards God, but not a real reform in the heart towards God. God had rescued them from their enemies, but they had not been rescued from the real problem, which was a sinful heart. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, to ask God for comfort and not for cleansing 
is only to sow seeds of selfishness that will eventually produce another bitter harvest. David's prayer is what Israel needed to pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, he says. And he's exactly right. We know this to be true, too, in our day. I mean, right? I'm reminded even of Jesus' parable. Remember Jesus told the parable about a demon being set out of someone but then seven demons coming back. Listen to Matthew 12, 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty. That's a key word there. Swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil in itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also it will be with this evil generation, he says. Now, there's a principle there. The heart must be filled with living water that only God can give. Or else we'll always, we'll always try to drink from man-made wells of the world to try to satisfy us. And those man-made wells never actually quench the real problem in our heart. They never actually quench that real thirst. And so the people fall right back into their sin again because though they were temporarily revived, they weren't eternally reformed by God. So we have a few firsts here going on. This is the first time the people were given that long of rest, like I mentioned. And secondly, this is the first time we're told that Israel was oppressed cruelly. Do you see that in verse 4? Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, that's Jabin, king of Canaan, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Um, earlier, when I mentioned that uh, we had already mentioned something, forgive me, I, I, I mixed that up with the long rest that they experienced. This was actually the longest captivity that they experienced as well. So that's the first there too. Um, before this, under Othniel and under Ehud, we're told when the bad king came in, we're told that the people of Israel served them for this many years. Remember Ehud? Part of the service to that bad king was they had to bring him tribute. That's why it was no surprise when Ehud comes and brings tribute and then with his left hand, remember, stabs the king. So we're just told with the previous times, they served this foreign enemy. Here, we get totally different language. Oppressed them cruelly is what we have here. So this would have been a different time. This time would have had a much different flavor to it. We don't get this explanation like this before. This king is much worse, much worse. This is when we're introduced to our next judge and our only female judge. She's quite famous, of course, because she is in a category by herself here in the Old Testament. And her name is Deborah. By the way, that's Hebrew for the word bee, like an insect that makes honey. Bee. So Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidus, was judging Israel at that time, we read in verse 4. People of Israel would go to her for guidance, we're told. 
raising up Deborah was an act of grace. To be sure, this was God being gracious to the people of Israel, 100%. But it also shows how bad things were. Let me explain. I know people want to point to Deborah in the Old Testament as an example that women can lead God's people. And she did. She did do that. But you need to understand something. Raising up Deborah was also a form of humbling the people of Israel since this was a male-dominated society. Also, Deborah being in that position was not a norm. It's not a norm that we should point to and, and think that this is acceptable when things are going good for Israel. God's clear pattern for leadership in the home and leadership of his people from creation, we see that the man is the leader. The man is to be the leader of the home. He was created first, and Eve was created from him. The original Hebrew, when Adam sees his wife and says, I shall call you woman, for you were taken from man, he says, I shall call you Isha, for you were taken from Ish. Ish being man, Isha being woman. It's there in the word, just like it is here in our English. We've maintained that. One man and, and man. Man was created first as the leader. That's how he's supposed to function in the home and in the church. Now the question comes up, well, can't women lead? Can they? Well, the answer is yes. They, yes, they can. But the real question is, should they? Not can they, should they? And according to the word of God, no, they are not supposed to be leading God's people just because the pattern that God has laid out in Scripture, even in the New Testament, we see Paul setting up churches and telling, telling them to pick godly men to lead these churches. And is that because men are better than women? Well, of course no, it does not mean that. They're not better than women. I actually know many women that are more godly than many men that I know. And the truth is, when we were missionaries, you could go to almost any church there, and the women outnumbered the men almost 90%. I mean, just, there were so few men that actually even went to church when we were missionaries. So very few men. And that's unfortunate. That's to our shame. See, the devil knows that we're supposed to be leaders, men. And so that's why he attacks us with laziness, with just being lethargic, with just taking the easy route and just saying, you know what, I'll just let her do that. It's because we're supposed to lead. We're supposed to be the godly example. And that's God's clear pattern. The fact that a woman was leading the people of God was another sign of how bad things were. You see, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 3, God tells all these bad judgments that are going to come upon his people. In Isaiah, chapter 3, this is a later time than here we are in Judges, of course. Much later, the 
people of God were still falling into sin. But he says this in Isaiah 3, 12. Look at this. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. So a lot of people want to point at Deborah and say, see, see, it's fine. It's fine to have a woman leading God's people. And I say to you, but look at what book this is happening in. This is not a good time. This is a very bad time. It was in fact so bad that God couldn't find any godly men to raise up. Women were having to lead the nation. Why? Because the nation was acting like infants. And so infants needed a mother. It's interesting because Deborah even calls herself the mother of Israel. And Deborah's song, chapter 5, is the section that we call Deborah's song. Whenever God does a, a, a mighty victory, sometimes in the scriptures you'll see a, a song breaks out or a poem is written later about it in order to memorialize it. Because we remember songs way better than we remember just hard facts, don't we? I mean, that's one way that I have been able to memorize large portions of Scripture is if they're in song or if I sort of kind of create my own song to them. We just remember those better. Remember after the Red Sea was split and the people were delivered? Miriam grabs, no, yes, Miriam grabs a tambourine and starts this song and commemorates the event in song, and so does Deborah in chapter 5. One thing she says about herself in chapter 5 in that song, chapter 5, verse 7, the villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. She saw herself as a motherly figure to them. Not as the fatherly figure, as a motherly figure to them, because they were so immature. You know, that though Deborah is a mother to Israel and a, and a leader of Israel even at this time, she's not said to be a fighter. When I was looking for like clip art for Deborah, the ones that I you know, chose up there, noticed it didn't show her with the sword, but when you look up Deborah, you'll find her with the sword and things like this and like, with the, with the army, but we're never actually told that she was doing that. We're never actually told that she was a, a fighter. Could she have fought? I guess. But we're not told that. Who leads the army? Well, as you recall, it's Barak. Look at verses 6 through 10 with me again. She sent and summoned Barak and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? That's key. Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali, the people of Zebulun, in case you're thinking, why didn't he just gather all the tribes? I mean, there's 12 of them. Why just gather those two? Those were the closest. Think about people being dozens and dozens, even over 100 miles away in the northernmost portion, because all the tribes were given certain portions of the land. Trying to get them there would take a long time, lots of resources, lots of water, lots of food, lots of animals in weeks. So he gathers these two tribes because they're the closest, if you're wondering. Verse 7, And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your 
hand. Now, this is good news. God is commanding Barak, and if God commands it, then you're equipped to do it. You need to know that, church. If God's commanding you to do something, then you're equipped to do it. Otherwise, he wouldn't call you to do it. Somebody might need to hear that. It could be me, but I believe somebody needs to hear that. We tend to think we need something else. And if God says go, we're just, we're just to go. If God says to do, we're just to do. If God says to give, we're just to give. And if God says to stop, then you've also got the ability to stop. Barak says to her, unfortunately, not what we want to hear. We want to hear a man of great faith saying, okay then, sister, I'll go. We don't get that. If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she says, surely I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead you to glory. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah goes with him, gathers the troops. So my question is this, was, was Barak's reluctance a sign of unbelief or was it a mark of humility? I mean, after all, he knew Deborah was a prophetess. He knew that she was the mouthpiece of, of God at that time for the people. And she was the one closest to God out of them all. But reluctant men aren't hard to find in Scripture. He's not the only reluctant man that we have in Scripture, is he? Moses was reluctant. We're going to see after this man, another man comes up named Gideon. Quite a reluctant man. Needs sign after sign. Oh my goodness, that guy. <laughs> Jeremiah, a prophet, was reluctant to go and tell the message to the people. When you consider that weapons during this time were limited, remember everything that was going on under Shamgar? Weapons would have been hard to come by. The enemy that they were facing was formidable. 900 chariots of iron. 900 chariots of iron. To you and I, that might sound like not a big deal. Those were, I don't know, the tanks of that day. Could they shoot metal projectiles hundreds of yards? No. But if they were charging at you in great number with all that inertia and force behind them, they mowed crowds down. Fifty or a hundred chariots galloping at you in full speed would shake the ground you were standing on. It would shake the very ground. And there was no stopping them. Once they hit a crowd of people, even if the crowd was holding spears, like I said, just the force would be like a wave breaking against you. This man was simply afraid. Limited weapons. No chariots of iron. He was afraid. This would indeed be an act of faith on his part, on the part of Barak. God would have to believe God's word and act on God's word. And though not justified, he did have reason to be reluctant. Before reluctant men of our day, for reluctant men possibly even in this church, 
you're also required to believe God at his word and to act according to it. I am, and so are you. To believe God at his word and act according to it, despite circumstances. That's never changed. It's still the same. Even though it's thousands of years ago, or 2022, the principles for walking in obedience are the same, and the expectation of God that his people walk in obedience is the same. Does God expect you to walk in obedience to his word? Well, the answer is yes. He's always expected that of his people. He speaks, we believe, we obey. That's what he expects of us, just like any good father and mother expects that of children that they raise. Why? Because that's what good parents do, and that's what good parents expect, and that's how children are supposed to act according to the word of God. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. So God expects his people to walk in obedience. Actually, a long period of consistent disobedience with little to no remorse actually shows that you're not even God's, doesn't it? And so when it comes to the reluctance of the heart, we need to believe God at his word, of course, and act accordingly with faith. And if you're having trouble with that, I'll say this. We'll join the club, and this is how I get help from God. I ask him for help. Pray and ask God in faith. But what about those who are reluctant of heart? When it comes to repent of their sins at all, what about those who are reluctant to turn from their sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ? What about that reluctance? That's a real reluctance as well. Mankind is a slave of his own sin. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave of sin. And those who have never been saved, according to Jesus, are children of their father, the devil, is what Jesus says. There's no middle ground here, people. Listen to me. There's no middle ground According to the word of God, you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. There's no in-between. And so, why are you reluctant, non-Christian? Why are you reluctant when it comes to coming to Jesus Christ? Why would you be reluctant in that area? Especially when he's holding open his arms and beckoning you to come. It's free. Salvation is free because it's been paid for already by the Son of God. He shed his blood. He took the punishment that you deserve on the cross and died and rose again from the dead. He's procured your salvation already. And you come, sinner, in your heart, now even. You can repent of your sin now and trust and believe right now. Why would you wait? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. What good news. Don't doubt. Believe. So Barak, however, was reluctant to go without Deborah, but... His reluctance would have consequences. In so many words, he's told by Deborah, okay, I'll go with you, but know this, the glory won't go to you. 
In fact, no man will be able to claim glory in the victory of this battle. It will actually go to a woman. And up to this point in the message, up to this point in the text, if you're just reading, you will think she's talking about herself. You'll think, oh, the woman, yep, it's Deborah's going to be the one who gets the glory here because she's the one who believed God. That makes sense. If that's all we had, that's what you would think. But let's keep reading and find out. So in verses 12 and 13, what do we have? Well, the men following Barak and the men following Sisera, they meet in battle. So the battle is on. Then we get to verses 14 through 16. Look at this in your Bible. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot, fled away on foot, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army all the way to that place that's got a very long name. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Wow. You probably noticed I kept putting emphasis every time it said, the Lord. Look who the primary actor in all this has been so far. The Lord's going to do this. The Lord's going to do that. The Lord did this. The Lord did that. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. God is doing this. Did the people have to respond in faith? Absolutely, they did. But when they did, that's when the Lord acted. It's not so much as if God's hands are tied and he's like, golly, I want to do something, but oh, just... I just don't see anybody that really, really, really badly wants me to. Gosh, I guess I'll just keep waiting. It's not that. It's that he responds to faith because that's the way he set it up. That's the way he has chosen to act with his people. Remember, even when Jesus was here on planet Earth and he was going throughout some of the towns and villages, it says about some of them, and God, no, and Jesus didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. He did many miracles in other places because they believed that he could. And they asked him. Other places didn't believe and didn't ask, so they didn't see God's hand move. They saw God's hand move because there were people that believed that he would do it. So here we have happening exactly what Deborah was saying would happen. She was a prophetess. She prophesied this would happen. And it did. God fulfilled his word spoken through the mouth of his mouthpiece that he chose at that time. Because God always keeps his word. So Barak pursues this one man that's left. Sisera. He jumps off his chariot. We're actually told it may be a metaphor, but many people think it's not. In Deborah's song in the next chapter, she mentions God reigning. Like, not reign like R-E-I-G-N, but reign, R-A-I-N. And some people think, well, that's literal. God actually sent rain on them, heavy rains, perhaps flash floods, which don't do well for chariots with little skinny wheels in mud. And so perhaps, if it's not a metaphor, if it's really real, if she meant like real rain, then this is God acting again. God sending rain 
And I even read somewhere else, this is right, people who study these times way more than I do, that this would not have been a time for heavy rain. There's seasons in the agricultural world over there, and this would not have been a time where rain would fall like that. Nonetheless, God's winning through his people. One man is left. This man who would have normally always had other men with him, because he's the leader of the army, would have always had other people with him to protect him and just be with him. He's alone. Now look at this, verses 17 through 24. Here's where our last character comes in. She hasn't even been named yet. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. The Kenites were connected to Moses way back in the day because they're descendants of Moses' father-in-law. So they've got a connection to the people of Israel. This wife of Heber, her name is Jael, for um, there was peace between Jabin, that's the bad king, remember, and, the, and of Hazor and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So Heber, somehow, some reason, we don't know why, was at peace with the bad king. He was not necessarily fighting for him, wasn't fighting against him, maybe something like Switzerland. He was just somewhat neutral, but he was at peace with him nonetheless. Verse 18, And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Now, she's wise enough to know, first of all, who this is. Because 20 years under oppression under these people, everybody would know who this was. She's also wise enough to know to see him running in his armor, out of breath, and alone, means things aren't going so good for him in this battle. He has been routed. He doesn't have his men with him, didn't pull up in his chariot, he's on foot, out of breath, and he looks scared. She's wise enough to pick up on something. He's losing. He's losing in this war. Turn aside. So she immediately goes into a plan here. She covers him with a rug. I promise you, had he woken up that morning and been fighting all day long without supplies, more than likely he may have had some sort of skin on him with some water in it, but it's not like he had a cliff bar and an energy drink. He is more than likely dehydrated, horribly hungry, and just got done fighting in a battle where there is adrenaline dump after adrenaline dump in his system. He's exhausted. She says, lay down. She covers him with a rug. She tucks him in. He says, please give me a little water. See, he's more than likely extremely thirsty, for I am thirsty. She opened a skin of milk and gave him the drink. You ladies know in here who've had little ones who are tired. You feed that baby milk warm milk, what happens to that baby? Asleep. We call it milk drunk. That's what we called it. Our ones were little. They're just out. So she covers them up, gets them all tidy, gives them warm milk. It would have been room temperature milk, but to us that would taste warm because we're used to cold milk out of the fridge. This would put him to sleep quick. She covers him up. 
He says to her, stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks, is anyone here? Say no. So he's now telling her to lie. Don't let anybody know I'm here. Again, another sign. Hmm. He's, he's defeated. He's running. He's hiding. He's afraid. She makes a choice. She makes a choice at that point. Look at verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Let me pause there. The people group, the Kenites, the reason why they're in tents is because they are a nomadic group. They move around. They live in tents. They don't build houses to stay in. They move. For the Kenites, it was customary for the women to put up the tents and to take down the tents. You know what this means? She was good with a hammer. She knew exactly what she's doing. And these tent pegs don't picture the little ones that you get at Academy Sports. Don't picture that. Have you ever been to one of the old circuses with the big tents? Have you seen the tent pegs in the ground? They're about a foot and a half long, two feet sometimes. Those are the tent pegs that you need to be picturing in your mind. That's what she's got in her hand, this massive long piece of metal, long enough to do with it what she's about to do with it. Then she softly goes to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. I imagine so, author. I don't think it was necessary to put those three words in there, but thanks for letting us know. I kind of assumed that he was dead. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went, found Sisera laying dead with a tent peg in his temple. <laughs> And it says in verse 23 and 24, so on that day God sub subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. An unusual victory, to be sure. Do we blame Jael for what she did and how she did it? Or do we bless her? Do we blame her? Or do we bless her? She was a little sneaky. A little almost dishonest even, it seems. Like, oh yes, come in here. Everything's going to be fine. Lay down. Go to sleep. Do we blame her or do we bless her? Well, Deborah, in her song, in the very next chapter, says this about Jael. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women. Most blessed. Why? Why most blessed? Well, her husband, Heber, likely for the benefit of his daily living and his daily well-being, had chosen to stay peaceful with a wicked king who was oppressing the people of God. Even though, as the Kenite, they had ancient connections to the people of God. Jael, Heber's wife, apparently did not want to stay peaceful with a man who was an open enemy of the people of God. And she chose a side that day, definitively chose a side. Because everyone who then comes into the tent and observes the situation, there's no doubt whose side she's on, and there's no doubt that she is not at peace with the wicked king. She's chosen Aside, 
We don't know. We don't know why her husband chose peace with them, as I said before. But when people believe God at his word and act in faith according to it, like Deborah did, and when people choose a side, God's side, definitively, definitively choose God's side by doing violence against the kingdom of darkness, God moves in their midst and shows himself mighty. Let me close with this. God was moving to restore his people, to restore them back into a right relationship with him, okay? And secure for them, once again, this promised land that he had promised them, this land of milk and honey. He's moving to restore that back again to them. Unfortunately, we know the rest of the story, but there was victory that day because one woman, Deborah, believed God at his word and act according to it, acted according to it. And then a second woman, J.L., chose a side with veracity. Not much has changed when it comes to those two principles for us today. Not much has changed at all. Those things have to be done by each of us every day. Believe in God and his word, acting according to it, and sometimes even daily choosing a side. And sometimes even choosing a side by doing violence against your own sin. What did John Owen say? Be killing sin, or sin will be what? Very good. We have a young theologian in our midst. Go Harrisons. That's exactly right, young lady. Sin will be killing you. Those things have to be done by each of us every day because God's enemies still seek to cruelly oppress you. If you think the enemy is not out to cruelly oppress you, praise God for the victory we got recently, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Praise Jesus for that. But guess what? 63 million babies are not with us because of that choice 50 years ago. And that's just the reported ones. So if you think the enemy doesn't want to cruelly oppress us, you are playing games. This is a word to you and I. Do violence against the enemy of God. I don't mean physically. Let me put that out on the internet. Not calling for physical violence. I'm calling for a spiritual violence against your own sin and worldliness in your heart and in your home. Choose a side. Believe God at his word and act according to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we ask, of course, that you would help us to act according to it. Help us believe it enough to act according to it because the truth is what we say we believe is not what we believe. What we live is what we believe. So give us grace to live out the truth according to your word and help us to daily choose a side, the right side with you. Pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.